for the homework was to look at Esther, to read the book of Esther every day for a week. You had two weeks to do it. I'm not going to ask who read the book every day. Ten chapters, it was quite a... Well, the tenth chapter is very short, so not too bad. But um, I thought we'd start just by discussing, really, a little bit about Esther. Um, I think one of the questions was to do a character study on her. Um, who do you think is the key... Who's the main character in the book of Esther? Well, she has... In Esther, not in Ruth, in Esther. So in... Uh, uh, you're saying Esther, that's actually cheating probably, Catherine, because her name's on the book title. So, um, yeah, Esther is, is a ca main character. Who else? Mordecai is a main character. Yeah, who else? Not Boaz, that's Ruth. Esther, yeah. The king, he's also, a, uh, yeah, whether he's a main character or not, but he's up there. Hey, man, he's a, he is a character. Sorry, we're keeping out the draft, Carol, so... Someone, uh, Rosie, you've got the draft <laughs> excluded. <laughs> it's not to keep you out, Carol. It's just the draft. <laughs> um, okay, so there's several main characters. Uh, Esther, of course. Um, Mordecai, Naaman. Who's the unnamed character in the book? God is the unnamed character. Actually, as we go through it, I think you can see that God is the main character in the book of Esther. Um, so, uh, what sort of a person was Esther? What was she like? Yeah, she was beautiful. She was obedient to, her, to Mordecai, yeah. She, yeah, she seems to have had a personal relationship with God. She was an orphan, yeah, and she was, yeah, she was brave after a while. She was brave. She wasn't brave initially, but she was brave, yeah, after a while. Uh, she went, what, what happened? What's the main, how does the story open, the account open? Yeah, Vashti wouldn't come and appear oh, when called. Queen Vashti wouldn't come as she was called, and so he uh, got rid of her basically. And uh, he was advised by his um, uh, advisors and nobles to uh, select a woman from all the young, beautiful women in the land. He was, yeah, he was. Um, so, what is, why does Mordecai? let Esther go because I mean this we, we talk about it it's a story and we think of it and we can think of all good things about it and all bad things about it but essentially she is a young girl who is sent into a palace to be a concubine to be a slave actually to the king so uh, why would Mordecai do that maybe maybe She didn't end up being, she ended up being the queen. But that only happened because she pleased the king on the night that she went in to, her, to be with him. And because she had had a lot of coaching from the, um, uh, probably a eunuch, but definitely the, um, 
the manager of the harem. Yeah. So uh, she found favor with him. He told her what to eat, what to drink, how to dress, what perfumes. And he basically made her ready for the one night that she would be with the king. And then uh, she found favor with him. She found favor with the king. But why did Mordecai um, just let her go? I'm not, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, that's a very noble motive. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think that what we're forgetting is that they live in they live in Susa, which is the capital at that time of the Babylonian Empire, and so they are actually exiles in a foreign land, and they have to comply with the edict of the king. No one cannot do that. So actually, Mordecai is just obeying the rules of the land that he lives in, and he probably doesn't have a lot of choice because if he tries to hide his beautiful niece, someone will say, "What about Mordecai?" Knees. So in the end, he complies with the edict that all these young girls have got to go, and he does um, what he has to do. I think we know the end of the story, so we're attributing to him. I mean, he's obviously a man of integrity, and he's obviously got wisdom, but we're attributing things to him that the story doesn't actually say. Hide the fact that she's a Jew. Yeah, hide the fact that she's a Jew. So... Um, for whatever reason, she is sent into the palace to do something she probably did not want to do. And I think that's what we have to keep in our mind, that Esther was a young, beautiful girl who probably had a future before her that she was mapping out in her own mind. And yet, her future was completely changed by the capriciousness of the king. Um, yeah. And I think. Did he? Which verse? Sorry, can you read? Tell me what verse you are again, uh, Mike. Chapter two. Okay. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yes, and how she had done. Yes, definitely, definitely. Okay, so um, if you had to say what Esther was like in her personality, what would you say? We've said she was compliant. She was what? Dutiful. She was tactful. She was probably very pleasant. She found favor with the harem uh, manager whatever, I can't remember what he was called, but anyway, uh, the, the king's eunuch in charge of the women. And, uh, and eventually, yeah, she was obedient, and eventually she found favor with the king. Okay, um, in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, she did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Oh yeah, and every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. It is, it is. Yes, 12 months of training, yes, to make her ready. Um, chapter 4, then, we'll skip over a little bit, starts to talk about her time of stress, her time of difficulty. Um, the king issues a decree after Haman gets involved to um, destroy um, all the Jews. And um, what's Mordecai's uh, response to that decree? 
he puts on sackcloth and he tears his clothing and he uh, um, went about in the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Um, in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Uh, what does Esther do? Yeah, H how did she find out about what was going on outside? Yeah, people had to come and tell her. So Esther didn't know. She didn't know what was going on. Why didn't Esther know what was going on? She was the queen by this time. Yeah, she was closeted. H Esther lived in a palace. She lived in a palace and she didn't really know what was going on outside the gate. Yes, so she didn't know what was going on. Yeah, and I suppose that for this, one of the first things I want to ask is, you know, we live in a palace. Actually, we live in a palace, and we often don't know what's going on outside the gate. We don't know what's going on all around the world, how Christians, our people, are um, suffering. Um, because she didn't know what was going on, she responded in the wrong way when she first heard about it. You've said that she sent clothes out, which he didn't want anyway. What did she attempt to do by sending the clothes out? <laughs> Maybe shut him up, but, but let's give her a better motive than that. So what... She... She tried to change things, but uh, you know we have that saying, don't we? She tried to put a band-aid on a lethal wound. She was trying to make things right from her limited understanding. Okay, how do how does that relate to us in our palace when we hear about what's going on around the world with Christians suffering persecution? Um, what is often our initial reaction? I'm not trying to put things into your mind, but I, I really believe that these are, um, what do you call them, parallels that we can make, really. We live in a palace. We don't have much idea about persecution in this country. We face it a little bit, and it's getting more, but we don't really have much experience of persecution. And often, our initial response is to um, pray for the thing that is the most obvious, Oh Lord, you know, get them out of that situation, fix this, fix that, try to do this, try to do that. I'm not saying we belittle it necessarily, but we have ideas about how God should act in that situation and that's what we try to do. We send out the clothes to make it better. Um, uh, Mordecai won't put the clothes on and what does he send back to her? He gives a copy of the edict which has been issued um, for the destruction of the Jews and he gives it to uh, this person to take back to Esther and inform her, it says in verse 8 of chapter 4, and to order her to go into the king to implore his favour and to plead with him for her people. And then uh, Hathak, I think that's the way you say it, came back and related Mordecai's words to, uh, to Esther. Then Esther spoke to him and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. What's her initial reply? Yeah, you must be joking. I can't do that. No one can present themselves before the king unless the king 
uh, calls for them. I can't do that, basically. Anyone who does that is going to be put to death unless the king holds out their golden scepter. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. So they tell Mordecai these words, and what does he say back to Esther? Yeah, God will save. He will deliver by some, somebody, if not you. But look at how he says it. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. I really, you know, if we're making the parallels, the connection to us in 2017, that is a huge parallel to, to look at and think about ourselves. Who knows that you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? You know, you live in the palace that you live in. Relatively, you may th not think it is a palace, but c compared to the rest of the world, uh, the rest of the Christian world, we live in a palace. And often we are not aware of what's going on. And then when we become aware, we try to fix it with our own ideas and our own send this here and send that there and pray this and pray that. And Lord, can you fix that? And can you fix that? And what he's saying to her, Mordecai, is you are there for such a time as this. We are here for such a time as this. We are studying the word for such a time as this. We have this place to come to and any other place that you go to for such a time as this. And the whole reason for that is you and I are to take what we hear from God and use it to save our people. To save our people. And, and that sounds dramatic, but I really think that that's what it's about. You and I are called in the circumstances we're in, by God, to understand the, the times that we live in, understand the signs of the times, and to go along, align ourselves with the will of God in the situation we find ourselves. Now, the difficulty is, living in a palace is very comfortable and very easy to get lulled off to sleep. It's very, very easy to get comfortable in the palace, and that's where most of most Christians are. They are very comfortable in their palace. Um, so he sends that back to uh, Esther and then she sends back a reply to him and, it, and says basically, yeah, she says, okay. She obviously listens to what Mordecai says and decides that she believes that and so says, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three nights, three days, night or day, and I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So this is a, a massive statement. And I was thinking, you know, obviously thinking about this. I was reading in Daniel the other day. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when they are told they must bow down? It's chapter 3 of Daniel. They must bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds. And, um, and they say, we're not going to bow down. And they say, we know that our God can deliver us. But even if he does not, we still will not bow. And I think, don't you think that somehow what we've been studying, what the Lord's been saying to us, what the times look like outside, what we're seeing around the world if we open our eyes, surely that is what God is calling to us. To, to, to be able to say, I know that you can save me, but even if you don't, even if you don't, I will still do. Yes. 
Yes. Yet will I praise him. So um, she she fasts and tells uh, Mordecai to get the whole uh, all of the Jews everywhere to fast. Though it doesn't mention pray, but fasting was always connected with prayer. Um, several places you could go through the Old Testament, find the places for yourself. Judges, Second Chronicles twenty, Ezra eight, Nehemiah nine. They all talk about fasting and linking it with prayer. Um, so far in the story, then, in the account of Esther, what might you find to encourage us? Because God wrote it down so that we would read it this week, last week. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's it. Uh, don't you think in the, in the account of Esther, which is almost... I mean, it's an incredible story, but we are able, we have a potential beyond anything we could imagine. And don't you think that the scripture that uh, tells us that is Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Esther was, she didn't know what would happen to her when she went to the king, but she was determined to do it. So she found the courage to go to the king, not knowing what he would do. Yes, yes. Yes, but I think what I'm saying is that we often look at ourselves and don't find that uh, courage necessarily. What we see are all the reasons why we couldn't be successful, why we couldn't do those things. And actually, the New Testament and the Old Testament tell us that we have this potential because we have Christ in us. The potential for what we can and cannot do is huge. Um, what's another thing that might encourage you? What did Esther have to do, actually? I mean, yes, she had to go to the king. Yes, she had to do that. But what she... She did. And in order to do it, she had to face something that she was afraid of. She had to face her fear. And the only way she could do that was by what? Trusting God. That's the only way that she could do it. And she actually comes to that. She doesn't mention his name, but thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And before she does that, she wants all the Jews in the land to fast, uh, which means pray as well. So what she is trusting is that the God who said he will work through the prayers of his people will actually work through the prayers of his people. That the God who says, when you fast and when you pray, when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me, is actually the God who will, she will find when she needs him. So she's facing her fear. Um, and actually, we have to face that every day of our lives, actually. We have to make choices based on what we believe about God. What we watch on the TV, what we, you know, how, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. You know, whether we pray, whether we don't pray, whether we come to this group or not, whether we read the Bible every day, we do all of those things. They're all choices that we make on the basis of who God is. And that's what she did. And what we're being shown here is because she decided to trust him, she was able to do something she was not able to do or would never have been able to do otherwise. 
So it isn't actually that she gets the result she wants, which makes her trust God. Before she gets that result, she decides to trust God. Um, Yes, in the end, yeah. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, it is. It is. So what, what's the main thing? If you could say that the book of Esther tells you one thing, what would it be? Actually, it's a bit difficult. Cause you, yeah, yeah, but I'm just, what, what would you say is the main thing that you can see in the way that this story unfolds? And uh, Mike's just said that Haman's told that he actually loses out in the end and uh, the Jews win, as it were. In the, the main theme in this story, what would it be? Trust God. God provides. We call it God's providential care. That's what we call it, God's providence. And, and God's in control, his sovereignty. That's what you see in this story. All the details, they're all pointing us to the fact that though you don't hear his name, God is in control. And actually, it's really interesting if you go through the account of Esther and plot the things that happened in the story to show you that God is in control. Um, I said this morning, you know, we, oft, we, we see in, in, in the Bible, you get miracles, don't you? You get things that are miraculous that happen, the burning bush where Moses is standing there and parting the Red Sea, and you see these miracles. And so we kind of know that that's God when we see them or read about them. But the understanding that God is in control of every detail of our life, that he is uh, sovereignly providing for his people is a understanding we have to really work at because it's not it doesn't come humanly by instinct you know we most people even believers think still think that things happen by chance or coincidence you know um i said this made up a story this morning about a young girl at a bus stop and it's pouring with rain and she's got an umbrella and somebody runs to the bus stop and shelters under her umbrella and just so happens that he's a good-looking young man and they go on the bus and there's only two seats and they have to sit next to each other and lo and behold they're getting off at the same stop how amazing is that what you know who'd have thought and then so the story goes on and in the end he proposes she gets married and it was all because of a chance meeting at the bus stop that's how most people see their lives but actually, the Bible tells us something completely different. He tells us that if we belong to him, there is no chance. It's all, and that's what takes effort to hold on to and to believe. Because that means that every single thing that happens in your life, or has ever happened, or will ever happen, God knows about and has provided for. That's a tough one. Yes. We don't necessarily realise the past what he was doing. Yes. Because he knows what's coming. Yes. So we don't. Yes. But he does. Yes. So therefore we prepare as well as we go through various Exactly. Yeah. Yes. 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 Thank you, Jane. Yeah. What were you going to say for the Years in the 
same work team as the man I was talking to in Yorkshire by Skype. Oh, right. How amazing. And so <laughs> we struck up a relationship immediately because he said, what? This yes. just unbelievable. Yeah. So I've been to see him. And, and yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. But it's, it, you know, and sometimes we see them, we do see them, we see them, oh yeah, that's, God's obviously there. But in the minutiae, or is that the, how you say it? Minutia, minutia of our lives, we don't see that always. We don't. And that's, I think that the book of Esther, the whole Bible is actually telling us you have to rethink every detail of your life. You have to rethink the days of your life. Rethink the purpose, the plan, the people you meet, the, the things that were said to you, the things that aren't said. Rethink it all in the perspective of God being in control. Now that means, that's, you know, we can say that easily here, but that means look at your life, what's happening at the moment in your life, and, and know, to your, know that God knew that he, as Jane has said, prepared you in some way for this and is preparing you now for something else that's going to come next. God knew about it and he provided for you in advance. So what does that mean? I mean, how does that change your thinking? Everyone's looking at me and you're thinking, it's only quarters to eight, there's a long time to go. <laughs> so... so yeah. Take that, took away, yeah. 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 It is. It is. What were you going to say, Catherine? Mm. So finish that sentence. So it's not just God. Who else is it? Correct. But who is uh, in control ultimately of the enemy? How much can Satan do and not do? That's it. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has, uh, Satan has uh, demanded permission to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that when when you uh, return, that your faith won't fail and you will feed your feed your brothers. So there's that idea that Satan has to ask permission from God. No, I'm sure you're not. It's good. Um, if, you're, if you're thinking, oh, this is from God. Yeah. No. No, no. Yeah, how do you work that out? Yeah, how do you work that out? That's true. But at the same time as the, as the enemy is trying to do you in and steal your joy and trip you up and all of those things, God has provided a way for you to gain discernment. And so he's saying, okay, Catherine, yes, you know, you're walking on with the Lord and the enemy doesn't want you to do that and he definitely doesn't want you to have joy and peace while you do it. So why don't you do what I think is best to do and that is get in my word and pray and get together with other believers because as you do that, the discernment grows in you and you start to see, actually, that's that's not right and that's 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 not going to be good for me and you can, and, and God guides you in that way. Um, so yeah, it's not simple. It's not okay. It's all from God, so it's all got to be good. No, I agree with that. 
but there is there is I, I think that's why um, Esther is written the way it is because actually what happens here is that God does not work until everybody prays and that's really interesting to me because he he's obviously been at work in the whole account but he waits for people to pray um, let just go through um, just t- go through Esther just from your memory if you read it and if you didn't just pretend you did and think about how you see God at work before the events start to unfold so how has God been at work in the account of Esther what's the first thing Right. 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 <laughs> exactly. So first of all, just slow down a little bit, otherwise you'll tell the whole story in one one breath. So first of all, Mordecai adopted his his cousin or his niece. It's a little bit uh, unclear. So he adopts her. So God sets that up in the first place. Vashti, yeah, he gives her her beauty. Vashti, the queen, doesn't do what she's supposed to do, although she's probably done what she's supposed to do for all of her life up to that point. But at that point, she doesn't do what she's supposed to do. And uh, so he deposes her. So God's at work there. Then uh, Esther's taken into the harem. And what happens? The head of the harem takes, you know, gives, finds, she finds favour with him. Okay, and then what happens? He... That's exactly, he's communicating. What happens in the story that is, um, as we read through it, we didn't read chapter 3, but as what happens in chapter 3? What causes the big problem for the Jews? Haman, yeah, Haman. And, and what does he want to happen? Everybody's got to bow down to him. What happens? Yes. It's the law of the land. But Mordecai refuses to do that. Yeah. Refuses to do that. So, uh, but even before that happens, what has already happened? We don't find out until Mordecai saved the king. He saved the king. He uncovered a plot before all this happened and he informed on this plot and the king's life was saved. But it's very specific. The king had overlooked rewarding him for this. So that's also in God's plan, right? So, uh, what about Haman when he decides he's going to annihilate all the Jews? How does he plan what day he's going to do it? How does he do that? He casts lots. He casts lots to see when he's going to do it. And when does the lot fall? When is the day that he's going to do it? It's 12 months later. 12 months later. So you can choose now. Did the lot just happen to fall 12 months later? Or was God involved in that whole thing? It took 12 months for the whole thing. No, it's 12 months to get the word out to all the Jews all around the provinces. 12 months to have them praying. 12 months for everything to be uh, happened. Um, Because the delay gave Mordecai an opportunity which he would not have had if the, pl- if the uh, lot had been cast earlier. Okay, uh, what happens the night before um, Haman's about to um, have Mordecai hanged? 
There's a banquet. There's a banquet. And uh, he comes to Esther's banquet. She has these. And, and what happens when the king goes away from the banquet? No, that's your t a little bit ahead. What happens first? Haman cannot sleep. He can't. No, sorry. The king can't sleep. So what does he do? He tells his advisors, get me something to read. And they just so happen to bring the scroll which talks about Mordecai saving his or uncovering this plot. And he finds out in that scroll he didn't reward the person who did it. So as soon as he wakes up in the morning, what does he do? See, that's what I'm saying. This is what I'm thinking. You know, all of these coincidences, all of these chance things, God is putting into place to, to bring about his purpose. But also, I think, not only his purpose that we know about, but his purpose that's under the purpose, if you see what I mean, which I think is actually foundational to the purpose of God. So Haman, uh, he goes home, he thinks he's, you know, everything's fine, he comes back for the next banquet, and what happens at the last banquet? She gives three, and on the third one, what happens? Because um, uh, the king hasn't been able to sleep, so Haman comes in and the king says, what should be done for this man? And Haman thinks it's going to be him. Exactly. You should do this, you should do this. Exactly. Yeah, and he gives all of this stuff. And so the king says, let it be done for Mordecai. And Haman, of course, is um, absolutely distraught and then ends up actually being on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot that, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. But can you see what I mean? All of these things that happened, what we might call naturally or by chance, God has already been at work here. He's already been at work. But... But um, some people say that Mordecai should have bowed to, the, to Haman. It was the law of the land. And that he was maybe a bit prideful that he didn't do it. Maybe he just didn't, just didn't want to because I'm Mordecai and I'm not bowing to anybody. Do you know what I mean? Even if that's true, what do you see in this account? Yes, even a sin God would use for his purpose. Apparent sin, yeah. If, as, if it was, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes, and I think that's what we see underneath this whole thing too, is that Esther, as I said, she wanted to, she thought she knew what was the right thing to do. And she sent the clothes out to Mordecai with no real understanding of what God has already been putting in place. Now, what had the danger then, let's think about that, what had the danger that Haman presented to the Jews that he was going to wipe them all out, what had that caused the Jews to do? To pray, to put on sackcloth and ashes, to fast and to pray, to get real with God. Okay, so what do, yeah, what do you think we learned from that then? Seriously, was the threat to the Jews good or bad? Bad, but 
what did God turn it around to? Because actually it had a good result. Not because he stopped them being attacked, but God wants everyone who knows him to pray <laughs> all the time. Paul says in Thessalonians, pray unceasingly. Pray unceasingly. What do you think is most likely to cause you to pray unceasingly? Trouble. Trouble. So when you look at the trouble in your life and the trials in your life and the stress in your life and the difficulty in your life, is it good or bad? That's what I'm saying. It just all depends on your perspective. Yes. So a bad thing becomes a good thing if it turns your attention to God. And a good thing becomes a bad thing if it takes your attention away from God. Always a choice. Always a choice. Always a choice. So, um, what does that tell you about us today then? Everything in your life, you know, um, whatever's causing you pain, whatever is causing you sorrow, whatever's causing difficulty, whatever is causing stress, what does God want you to do with that? Take it to him. Take it to him. And, and why does he want that? Yes, yes, you can't do it on your own. And because actually that's the whole purpose for us. We are to be constantly coming to him with everything, good, bad or indifferent, but definitely the bad stuff. Coming to him, yes, coming to him all the time. Why? Yes, that's true, but what else? Yes, and in that way we... Definitely, and what does that what does that show? It glorifies Him. It glorifies God. It glorifies God when His people say, "You're God, and I'm not. You can do this, and I can't. And I am depending on you to do it." It glorifies God when you pray. When you pray. So when Paul says, "Pray unceasingly," he's saying that. Of course, God is saying that through Paul for our benefit. But ultimately. Everything that God asks us to do is for his own glory. We, if you like, we're beneficiaries as a side effect. I don't mean that badly, because of course God is gracious and kind and loving. And, but actually, our business of glorifying him causes us to receive the joy and the peace and the everything else. So when we think about knowing peace in a shaking world, which is what this course, this course is entitled, Knowing peace in a shaking world can only be done as we go to the Lord with everything, as we call on him all the time. And so our knowing peace is connected with us glorifying him. Do you see what I mean? You won't have peace if it's not connected to your glorifying God. Because the only way you'll have the sort of peace that will keep you peaceful in a shaking world is the peace that God gives and that you had to go to him for. So I just love those connections. I love those connections. I love the way that God makes it, that, that all of the blessings that he wants to pour out on us, our coming to him, wanting those blessings, asking him to, to, to be God in our lives, not only brings us the blessing, but ends up glorifying God and is a witness. It's a witness here and it's a witness there. It's a witness in heavenly places. Yeah. 
Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 10, that God's manifold wisdom is made known in the heavenly places through the church. And that is made known when the church decides, actually, we can do nothing. The best thing we can do is to pray and to rely on God. Um, So, what does that tell you about, uh, because you said, uh, Catherine, Satan's at work. He's at work against the church. He does not want us joyful or peaceful or with self-control or uh, being faithful. He doesn't want any of those things because those things are a witness to the glory of God. So he is at work to trying to take those things from us. So how are we to go on then? How, how, what are we going to do in response to that? Stick close to God. Pray about everything. And know that God is in control, actually. You see, it starts with us really believing that. And honestly, I actually think I don't believe that half the time. It's like, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because I know these things in my head. But when something happens... They send you off on a tailspin. Depending on how bad they are, you go off for however long you go off and you have to fight to bring yourself back. You have to fight to actually know I am a forgiven child of God and that that all of my failings and all of my weakness and all of my sin does not change that. And you have to fight for that because the enemy is always coming with, call yourself a Christian, so even that causes me to pray. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? So every, every answer is pray. Every answer is pray. There's that song, um, Oh, What Peace We Often Forfeit. Do you know that's an old song? Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I know it's so embarrassing that we know the words, all of us. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so are they true, those words? How do you know they're true? How do you know they're true? Yes, but also, also that's a good reason, Anne, but there's also another reason, because the, the Bible bears that out in Scripture. God has actually said that. He said it in Philippians chapter 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And we all say, whoop de doo we've got the peace of God. Hello, Caroline. Um, so we have the peace of God, but he, Paul does not finish there. He then goes on in those verses. We, we studied Philippians, so I know that you already know this. But honestly, let's really make sure we, we don't forget it. Look at what he says. Finally, brethren, this is a continuation of the same subject. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what? The God of peace will be with you. You see, actually, Paul is not satisfied with the peace that passes all understanding. I mean, I know that it's good. He knows that it's good. He wants peace. And he wants the peace that passes all understanding. But he wants us to continue on past receiving that peace so that the God who is peace is with us. 
so that we know that the God who is peace is always with us. And that's, that's the thing that will keep us praying unceasingly. That's the thing that will keep us uh, enabling us to see the, the, the whole providential plan of God and his purpose for our lives is if we know the God who is peace, the God who is joy, the God who is faithfulness, the God who is truth, if we know him by experience. And you see those little dots, how they connect. John, uh, in John's Gospel, John 17, verse 3, Jesus is praying and he says, and this is eternal life that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Know by experience, that is life. That's life. In a dead world, that is life. That we know the God who's peace, the God who's joy, the God who is truth, the God who is faithfulness, the God who is righteous, the God who is powerful, the God who is omniscient, that we know that God and that we grow in our knowledge of him. That's that's the thing that will give us peace in a shaking world and that will give us the life that Jesus promised. What did he promise us? I came that you might have life and life abundant. Abundant. Not just a ticket in so that when we die, it'll all be great and we'll go to heaven. Not just that, but that we'll have life, real life. Because if you have life, what will happen? I mean, I know you'll be alive, but you know what I mean. What will happen if you have that sort of abundant life? Yeah, other people will notice, but even that's secondary, even thirdly, thirdly or whatever it is. What will happen if you have that abundant life? God is glorified. God is glorified. Why? Because only God could do that in you. So he is glorified. You are filled with joy and peace and every other good thing and people around you see. How is that possible? How is that possible that with all that's going on in his life, her life, all that's going on, that that life is so powerfully evident? That's the, that's the just the witness and the testimony to God. And that's why... Um, Paul writes, pray unceasingly. Pray at all times. That's why the whole Old Testament is full of prayer and fasting. That's why going into the New Testament, Jesus won't say, if you fast. He'll say, when you fast. And when you pray. And what's so amazing is, uh, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 6 just for a short time. Um, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about this fasting and praying and, and actually in, he begins in chapter 6 with giving. What he's going to say is, it's actually something I think that by and large <sighs> Christians miss, the church misses. I don't want to say the church because everyone thinks I'm taking pot shots. I'm not. Yeah, thank you, Anne. Thank you. Yeah, this, that's, Look at in Matthew 6, he's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He's been describing to them how you get into the kingdom of God and then he's, he's going on to say how you live in the kingdom of God. And he turns everything upside down. And he does that um, really from the beginning. But then as you get into chapter 6, his main focus in chapter 6 is your relationship, your growing experience with God and with Jesus. And he's talking about an experience and a knowing and a relationship that is all internal. Look at what he says. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Chapter 6, verse 1. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he'll go on. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be praying and standing on street corners and having these wonderful eloquent prayers and don't keep repeating words and going over and over so that you're seen by people and everyone says, how spiritual Anne is, how spiritual Philip is. I wish I could pray like him and oh my goodness he's so close to God and and that's how human beings are we we judge by externals and what God what Jesus is saying here is everything you do in secret is what matters about you it's not that we're not to do good things not what not we're not to go out but your abundant life will mostly be done inside it will be done in secret It will be uh, experienced in the quietness of your relationship with Jesus. I mean, he uses that word secret all the way through these verses, um, trying to tell us that this is something, it's important, it's important that your relationship with God is not a corporate relationship. It's a private, individual, close relationship so that when you talk to the Lord, you talk to him as if he were right there with you, which he is. And you can pray to someone, you can talk to someone who's actually walking beside you. You won't have any difficulty doing that. Actually, you'd find it quite difficult not to talk to someone who was with you all day long. Yes, because it would be embarrassing not to speak to them. So that's what he's saying. If you truly believe that God lives within you and that he is in control of your life and that he walks beside you every step of the way, you will be speaking to him all the time. Okay, where are we going now? What are we doing tomorrow? What are we doing today, actually, Lord? (gasps) You know, who's going to call me up? Who am I going to speak to? Where am I going to go? And I'm I'm not trying to be silly about it, but that understanding that he is... Um, he is going to do that. Now, if you have that understanding and you manage to hold on to it for more than the first 10 minutes of your day, um, (laughs) what's going to happen through your day? What will happen as you go through your day if you truly, truly can hold on to that? You'll be guided by him. What else? Uh, yes. Of course. Yeah, of course. And you'll have peace. And you'll have joy. And you'll be doing what you, we were talking about earlier. Yeah, Peter won't be walking on the water. He'll be walking on the word. And that's what we'll be doing. We'll be walking on the word. Our eyes will be fixed on the man who's standing next to us. I don't, you know what I mean by man, on the God who's standing next to us. We'll be focused on him. But Yes, because he's the one in whose hands my whole eternity rests. He's the one who plotted my end from my beginning and every day in between. 
Yes. I've got a quote here from... Um, I'm going to quote it from Hudson Taylor, but first, sorry, I've got some questions which I'm going to... I have to look at my notes to remember to ask because I want us to ask these questions because I honestly believe that an accurate gauge of our faith is how much we pray in secret. How much do you pray? I'm not talking about praying at length or wordy prayers. or I'm not even saying how good are your prayers because they're probably rubbish like mine. So uh, what I am saying is how much do you pray and want to pray? How much do you want to pray? How much do you want to talk to, to, talk to the Lord? Um, but then I, and when you do pray, these are the questions. When I pray, do I want God to answer with his plan or... You said it earlier, Anne, with the provision of what I want, what I've asked for. Yeah, rubber stamp mine, that's good. Yeah, rubber stamp my plan. When I pray, do I come with my list of good things, good things, not bad things, good things, for him to provide, or do I say whatever your will is? And, you know, these are easy questions, and, you know, there's nothing... You could look at them and think there's nothing deep in that, you know. But really, if you really ask yourself the question, really, what, when you say to God, you know, when you're praying for the people in your life, when you're praying for your own life, when you're praying for things about your job or your future or whatever it is, do you really honestly say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done? Hmm. Hmm. Mm, it is scary. But there you see, and that's what I'm saying, and I think that's where Jesus wants us to get, to the place where it is no longer scary because we so know that he is a good, peaceful, joyful, abundant, giving God. That's the thing. So in the places where it's scary, and I'm with you, it is scary sometimes, that's really a measure of an area that still needs to be set free, actually. Yeah, yeah. He's only good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. There's no thing that he would ever give you that is not good. But to get to that place where we can totally trust that and therefore say, actually, I don't want to ask for anything because it won't be as good as what you're going to give me, that, yes, oh yeah, 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 yes, yeah. So that's the second one. Do I truly, this is the next one, um, do I truly believe, do you truly believe that God wants to involve you in his plan and purpose for your family, for your town, for your nation? Do you really truly believe that what God does in and through you makes a difference, makes a difference in this world? And you know what? I wish I could say yes, I believe that all the time. Exactly, exactly. So in the, all these things where we know, honestly, when we're looking at ourselves honestly and we know, no, actually, I don't always believe that. I want to believe it, but I don't always believe it. Then we have to, un have to know and accept that we then have believed a lie from the enemy. We have um, taken on something that is not true. And we have to find out what that is and be rid of it. And how will we find out what that is? Exactly. Come to the Lord and say, search my heart and see if there be any. Yeah. 
And it's not necessarily the wicked way, because hopefully you can say fairly well that, you know, you have confessed all known sin. But there will be things that you have believed about yourself that are not true. And you are living on the basis of those things. And that's the, the place, really, that you give the enemy the hook, the way to attack you and the way to, to cause you to lose your joy and your peace and not to have discernment. Because for so long you've believed the lie about yourself that you think it's the truth. Yeah. Because if you were to try and believe that actually you are worth something, you are worth something to people, mm-hmm. um, then actually that would go against that line. That 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 would be yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly the second lie. Exactly. Exactly. It is very easy. It's the, it's the biggest one of the biggest lies. I think, or the most common. Let's say, the most common. That um, well, it's just you not being humble. I went to see a girl in um, in Zurich that I knew from London, and she's not long moved there. And she's um, about the age of my daughter, so, um, and uh, she is she has the, the a heart for evangelism. She has a heart for evangelism and a gift for evangelism. She is always talking about the Lord. She is on fire for the Lord. But when I got to see her, um, it wasn't long after I got there. I just had a cup of tea and she started to say that every time she does anything, she's, she has a heart for evangelism, but the way she evangelizes is she recognizes need in people and she just comes alongside and offers to help. She just offers to help. She just is a beautiful girl like that. She'll just offer to help anybody. And she'll actually do what, what's necessary. Every time she was doing that, she was hearing a voice not a real voice, but some question. So what's your motive for that then? Are you just trying to look humble or look good or trying to make friends because you've moved to a new place? And she believed that was the Lord. She thought it was the Lord trying to keep her humble. So when she started to tell me and and she was crying, I said, that is not God. That is just not God. Because what he wants you to do is tell people about him. So any way you do that... That's what he wants you to do. So it's a lie to get you to keep looking at your motives and saying your motive is all about you and not about God. And, and, and it was amazing because in that short time, I was there a couple of hours, I was there with another friend of mine. She just was transformed by seeing the lie for what it was. Exactly. And, and she just went for it. It was like night and day. She moved from believing the lie to seeing what a lie it was and being able to say, I am not believing that anymore. I'm not believing that anymore. And that's what we have to do. So it's not necessarily sin we're asking God to search for. It's, it's the lies that we've believed about ourselves. Like, you know, you're not worth anything to anybody. And if you think you are, as you say, as pompous or too full of pride or whatever, the plain fact is if you believe in Jesus, you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You just haven't found out all the great stuff about the new you. You just haven't found it yet. But that's the truth. Yeah. It is. Yes. 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 Yeah. Absolutely. 
Yes. Yes. And yes. Yeah, and the thing is, Jane, I was encouraged in that conversation. And so not only was she set free from that lie, but I was encouraged and in a way affirmed for the reason I was in Switzerland. Do you see what I mean? So it was just, there was a no-lose situation in it all. So really my encouragement is, um, 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So really, every now and then, go through your life, ask God to search your heart and say and, and show you. And I'm, sin if you want, ask him to show you sin in, in, in your life because you do sin. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. That's what John says. But ask him to show you particularly the lies that you have believed about yourself the lies that you've believed um, and, and, the, and how that you've believed them. Because sometimes you haven't believed a direct lie. You've just been involved in something in your past and, and it, it has kind of taken root somewhere and the lie has sprung from that. So ask him, you know, what have I believed that's a lie? And what, what am I still living with? And then say to him, I'm sorry I've believed that for so long. And I'm confessing that and laying it aside and trusting that it is now gone. That you will have dealt with it. And honestly, I can't tell you how important I think this is because unbelief is attached to all those lies. It connects with those lies in ways you can't even see, you know, um, if you believe that I was saying this morning, I went to a party on Saturday night, it was a 70th birthday party, and everyone in my it was in my village, and everyone in my village, most people avoid me because they think I'm going to try to convert them. <laughs> so I was quite happy to be, yes, probably true, I was quite happy to be sitting at a table with three people, and there was a, a young lady on there, again, about the age of my daughter, and uh, she asked me about how I came to know Jesus because she started to go to the little parish church in our village. So I told her, you know, and then she asked me more questions and I told her. And I'm pretty, you know, like out there. So I was telling her. And, and then you see the look on people's faces and you think, yeah, I think this might be a bit much. This is like a you know, science fiction movie. She's not <laughs> quite got it yet. But anyway, so I felt, felt like I toned it all down and was just very gentle and... At the end of our conversation, fairly quickly, she got up and said, I thought, I'm, I'm going to go and find my husband. So, I th And I did think, oh, I hope, you know, that was okay. I hope was. I went to bed that night and I could not sleep because all night long I was hearing, I was going over that conversation and saying, why did you say that? You shouldn't really have said that. You should have said this. That might have been much better. And if you hadn't been so like in your face, you know, maybe I frightened her off. What's going to happen? She never goes back to church. And on and on. Into Sunday morning. Got up Sunday morning, still having these thoughts so until about lunchtime. And I suddenly I started reading and saying, and, and confessing and repenting to say to the Lord, please forgive me for talking about you. And it was just like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a lie. That's a lie from the enemy. Of course God wants me to talk about him. And of course I'll make mistakes when I do it. And of course I'll go too strong or not strong enough or whatever. Of course, of course, that's what's going to happen. But you see, I'd spent a night and half a day wrapped up in a lie. And it was unbelief. It was it was me believing a lie and not believing that God would use everything 
that he would cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. No, <laughs> I may not see her for a while. She might avoid her. No, but the, you know, the thing is, it was a lie. It was a lie. And it was so easy to believe because it hit right at the essence of me in that village. <laughs> because when I moved to that village, I don't know what I was thinking, but I just thought everybody was a Christian. So I was just sharing all the time about the Lord. Anytime anybody invited me anywhere, I would tell them about how I came to the Lord in Japan and how amazing that is and, and what God did and how he changed my life and on and on and on. And people would glaze over, you know, and <laughs> start to step back. And I didn't realize for quite a long time that I probably should have done that a little bit slower so that people had a chance to get to know me, you know. So, But anyway, so it touched a nerve. It touched a place that I'm obviously vulnerable and I believed that lie for way too long. Exactly, 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 exactly. Exactly. And it uncovered a whole load of other things. I'm sure there was a bit of pride in there and there was a bit of reputation. Oh, goodness, you know, they're all going to avoid me now. And, you know, this and that and the other thing. And it was all lies and all connected to unbelief. So I really would really suggest that we all do that every now and then. I want to read something, actually, probably to finish, maybe not to finish, but close to finishing. I read something about Hudson Taylor. Most people know that Hudson Taylor was the man who God said go for me to China, and he went. And basically, uh, what we see in the church in China today is, is he was the start of that in 1800 and something. And this is what he wrote. He was a fantastic uh, missionary to China. Um, I strove for faith, but it would not come. I tried to exercise it, but in vain. Seeing more and more the wondrous supply of grace laid up in Jesus, the fullness of our precious Saviour, my guilt and helplessness seemed to increase. Sins committed appeared as trifles compared with the sin of unbelief, which was their cause, which could not or would not take God at his word, but rather made him a liar. Unbelief was, I felt, the damning sin of the world, yet I indulged in it. I prayed for faith, but it came not. What was I to do? When my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from a man called John MacArthur, his colleague, was used to remove the scales from my eyes and the Spirit of God revealed to me the truth of our oneness with Jesus um, as I had never known it before. McCarthy, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure but saw the light before I did, wrote, but how to get faith strengthened? not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. As I read, I saw it all. If we believe not, he abideth faithful. I looked to Jesus and saw, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed, that he had said, I will never leave thee. Ah, there is rest, I thought. I have striven in vain to rest in him. I'll strive no more. That's from a book called The Spiritual Secret of Hudson Taylor. And that really sums it up. I really think that sums it up. Because we strive, most, all of us here I expect, we strive for faith. We strive to go on with the Lord. We're striving to be who he wants us to be and do who he wa what he wants us to do. And all of the time he's saying, just rest in me. 
just rest in me. And the way you show you rest in me is that you decide that the inner life is more important than the external. That your internal relationship with Jesus that is founded on the word of God and prayer is what will take you on in your journey with him. And God will use it. He will use that internal experience to make a difference in the world. Um, yeah, 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 please. Yeah. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Oh, really? Wow. Wow. No, you don't. Absolutely. So this lady that I sat next to, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. And I know. I know. I can't believe it took me so long to get to that place. You know, I mean, I'm just being real with you so that, you know, you see me for as I really am. (laughs) So... God is always at work, and he is always at work through his people, and he is especially at work through the prayers of his people. It's important that we pray, it's important that we ask him, and it's important that we ask for his will and not our own. Um, So um, those questions that I asked you, if you wrote them down, please think about them. Um, The homework's online. It's not difficult this time. It's really easy. Um, Quite basic but it's based on Matthew chapter 6. So, but please do it and, and make it deeper. You know, go deeper in the word. If I've asked a really simple question, ask another one of yourself. And, you know, and ask, ask the Lord to ask you a question. Um, yeah, so I, I've got a plan. Uh, begin, this week, begin each day with thankfulness. Ask the Lord to search your heart. Confess the lies that you've believed and lay them aside and then fight for the peace and joy that God says is available in him. So yeah, start each day with thankfulness. So start every day thankful. Even if you don't have time to do anything else, when you open your eyes, you know, I had to practice that. Years ago, someone said to me, um, The last thing she thought about at night was the Lord, and the first thing she thought about in the morning was the Lord. And I wanted that. I wanted that. So I asked God, please help me with that. I want to wake up thinking about Jesus. I want to wake up thankful. And so I I had to pray about it for quite a long time. But now mostly I wake up in the morning and I say, I'm thankful. I am mostly. Not every day, but mostly. Second one is ask the Lord to search your heart and show you, um, show you the, the lies that you've believed. Obviously, the sin. If you're involved in sin, you know you don't need Him to search your heart. You know it. So, um, ask Him to help you to confess it and repent of it. But it's definitely the lies that you have believed from the enemy. And really, I think it's better to to confess that as you would a sin. Because actually you have been in unbelief, which is a sin. You've believed a lie instead of believing who God is. 
So then renounce the lies and determine to live in the truth as best as you are, as, as well as you are able. And ask God to help you to do that because it's not easy. And as, again, practice. Um, I've put here, I'm, I'm, this is not because I don't think you have a quiet time with the Lord, but I really think it's, it takes effort sometimes to make, to have at least half an hour with the Lord every day. And, you know, mostly you have quiet time, but I really think it takes effort sometimes to put that into our busy lives. And, um, and also to, to spend that half an hour in the Word and then pray about what he says from the Word. So, so quiet time, as I understand it, and this is just my understanding, it, there's no rules to quiet time. As long as you're quiet with the Lord, that's it. But I really think it's a good thing to read the Word. And instead of praying about all your family and friends and issues, which of course we pray about and we're supposed to, but to read from the Word and pray about what you read. Because that's God talking to you. And I want to talk about that to him. Back to him. I want to respond to what he said to me. Sometimes it's easier than others. You know, if you're in Leviticus, it's sometimes a bit hard. But, um, you know, really make an effort to do that. And then determine, the last point is, determine to fight for the joy and peace that Christ has promised. Using the only weapon that he has given us. What's the weapon? The word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God. So, Therefore, brethren, stand firm. Put on the full armor of God that you may stand in the evil day. And then on and on and on. And then take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So um, fight for joy and peace. Fight for the truth. Just keep the truth in your own mind. Fight against the enemy. And fight against your own flesh, actually. <laughs> You know, because your flesh wants to, to you to give up. Yeah, through reading his word, yeah. And yeah, and then picking up that sword and actually using it in the specific instances. So, Father, thank you that um, your word is amazing. Lord, thank you that it is simple. <laughs> thank you that it's simple to know you. Thank you that you've made it so simple for us to grow in our knowledge of you. Thank you that we can come to you at any moment of any day and we can pray. We can actually be in conversation with the God who created all things and upholds everything by the word of his power. Thank you, Lord, that we know you. We know the God who flung the stars into space. And thank you that you have, as I say, made it so simple for us to come and to pray and to pick up your word and to know that as we do that, you will lead and direct us. You will guide our path. You will lead us into all truth. You will enable us to find you when we come to you. So, I, Lord, I want to pray for us all here tonight, each of us with our own lives and our own issues and our own things going on. I pray, Lord, that this week, this two weeks actually, until we meet again, that you would remind us every day to come to you in this way and to trust that you are the God who rewards those who seek him. And I pray that in Jesus' name, Lord, and for his glory. Amen.